Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Proverbs today is taken from Proverbs 29, verse 2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. The last call to confession I prepared was from Proverbs 28, verse 12. I'd like to read it again. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory, but when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Both of these Proverbs show the connectedness between the well-being of people and those who rule over them. This is true in countries, this is true in, true in homes as well. Thus, particularly now, we feel the weight of the election decisions on us that our country has as we choose leaders for the next term of office. Important elections are those which you are deciding which way to go in two very distinct or discrete directions. Important elections help decide if we're going southeast or if we're going northwest. Important decisions are, are held on Mount Carmel, with the candidates being Jehovah or Baal. Important decisions, important elections, are not elections where millions of people are debating over which of the stinking candidates is least stinky. Ours is an election, is a kind of election that occurs when all the crucial decisions have been made decades before. Important decisions, in other words, important elections, in other words, are elections in which decisions are actually being made. The election which is bearing down on us now is nothing more than the slow motion manifestation of the decisions which have been already made, decisions which began many decades ago. You cannot, dis you cannot sow disobedience, pride, insolence, mammon worship, lust, relativism, and confusion for half a century and then reap a government that we expect to be filled with modesty and decorum. If we wanted a harvest of barley, we shouldn't have planted all those mutant thistles in the field. So what's left for us to do at this point? Well, there's plenty we can do, but the only truly potent thing we're called to do at this juncture is repent. John Calvin put it well when he said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Our rulers are a reflection of us. The only one with complete control over whether or not this will continue is our great Jehovah. He could nod his head and the king's heart would simply turn and go the opposite direction. He could simply give his assent and what future historians would call the Great Reformation could begin immediately. But make no mistake about it. The future plans that God has for this planet do not require the United States. We are not the essential nation. We are, like every great power, a non-essential nation. If God restores us, it uses us wonderfully, it's nothing but his great mercy. If he sets us aside and accomplishes his purposes through others, God is still the same. So back to what a people should do when they are in great distress. They should do, what should they do when the choices before them are simply appalling? Scripture is clear, we must cry out to God. 
A number of scriptures point to this. Exodus 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. 1 Samuel 12. When Jacob went to Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out and made them dwell in this place. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. But now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies that we may serve you. And finally from Nehemiah 9, Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and heard them, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of the enemies. Such passages can be multiplied many times over. So when you go to the voting booth next week, whatever else you do, we must cry out to the Lord. We must tell him that we acknowledge that our own folly and wickedness is what has brought us to this point. And we must cry out to him in the name of Jesus. And then you should vote in a way that you can, in good conscience, ask God to bless. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Please kneel where you are if you're willing. Again, to be a pleasure to be with you, especially on this momentous weekend, the year, time of year for the church, reformation and remembrance of all the saints. It's always good to remember and to reflect, to remind us of the grace and the mercy that we have received. But sometimes the moment does not remind us of that, right? And so we have to look beyond ourselves. There was once a young sculptor, sculptor who became quite distressed. He had just been asked by the church leaders to repaint the ceiling of the local church. At first, Mr. Simeone declined the offer insisting that he was a sculptor, not a painter. In addition, Mike knew that the request was an underhanded scheme devised by his fellow artist to cause his demise or to at least keep him busy enough so that he would, be not, he would not be such a great competition. The church leaders continued to insist on his work, so Mike reluctantly took on the project. The ceiling was oddly shaped, immense, over 6,000 square feet, and he had been given materials and tools to work with that he was unfamiliar with. Yet, through trial and error, Mike labored for four years to learn the proper techniques. Standing on a scaffolding 60 feet in the air, with his neck stretched behind him and his hand over his head in order to reach the ceiling and paint it. In fact, it was reported that after the job was done, it took him a while to be able to read a letter in front of him because his neck was trained 
to read above him. It was arduous work, and about halfway through the project, Mike reported that he was going to quit. He would not finish the work. The church leaders insisted on his continuance and even threatened to throw him off the scaffolding if he did not complete the work. Fearing for his life, Mr. Simone returned to the task and finished painting the ceiling. When the scaffolding was finally taken away and the tarps were put away, Mike's work revealed that he was more than a sculptor. He was a master painter. Mr. Simone had painted more than 50 different scenes, uh, portraying 400, over 340 figures on the ceiling of the church, depicting the story of God's redemptive history from creation to Christ. On All Saints Day in 1512, Michelangelo presented to the world the masterpiece that we know as the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Not only is that an exciting story to remember God's faithful people and God's faithful blessing, and certainly it's a reminder of how far or not so far we've come in culture to think that the whole of Rome would gather to view a painting in a church that talks about God's redemptive history. But it's also a good reminder that perseverance in daunting situations is important. We often face such hardship. Others may seek to undo us. We may not always have a clear understanding of where we are headed. We may not always feel like we're adept at what we're supposed to do, what God has called us to do. We may not feel blessed in the moment. But we need to remember that God is a God who's blessing us, who blesses his people, and his blessing, his blessing is present even in the darkest moments. Psalm 1 reminds us of how that blessing comes to us. It's not just a, uh, it, it's not just an immediate act or event. It is ongoing. And so let's look through, let us consider Psalm 1 and see the portrait of a blessed person. As we begin, the psalmist says, blessed or blessed is the man. And I think it's important for us to define what this word blessed means. For too often, I think, when we think of the word blessed, we think of bounty. We think of excess. We think of prosperity, positivity, easiness. Right? Is that when you think about your own life, when you think you're blessed, it's in those moments when everything is copacetic. Everything's going well. All the stars have aligned. Right? The perf- everything's together. That's our blessed moment. We often refer to this as the God thing, as though God only does positive things in our life, right? And it's easy to see why that's often our perspective. We go all the way back to creation, as Michelangelo did, and we read in Genesis that God blessed Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and multiply. 
They were in the perfect garden. The same blessing was given to Abraham and told that his, his uh, dis, uh, descendants would be greater than the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. Noah was blessed. Isaac was blessed. Job, we know, was wealthy beyond our imagination. But we also know, as we read their stories, each of these individuals experienced what Paul reminds us, as they knew how to to abound and to be abased. They knew what it was like to be full and hungry. And in Deuteronomy chapter 2, as the Israelites are gathering to finally enter into the promised land, God, through Moses, tells the people that the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're trudging through the great wilderness. Wait, the wilderness was a great blessing? He concludes... These 40 years, the Lord has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So it's a good reminder that the situation or the circumstance is not necessarily the definer of the blessing. From our reading in Matthew 5, recall, what, who is blessed? Those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who suffer persecution. Those don't sound like blessings. But it's the end of the verse that reminds us of the blessing. What do the poor in spirit inherit? The kingdom of heaven. How about those who mourn? They will be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And so on and so forth. So we must remember that it's not just the current condition that must be understood for our blessing. But it is the future hope. It's not just the process through which we come, but it's the promise for which, for, that we are pursuing. Our blessing is not the moment, but God's work in us. But we must also understand that blessing does not come without the conditions or without the process. It comes through them. And so as we look at the rest of the psalm, we want to consider three arguments, three uh, presentations that the psalmist gives to help us get a clearer picture of what it means to be blessed. First, we're going to look at the consistent affections. Then he's going to give us some contrasting analogies And finally, will give us the consequential assurances. So let's begin in verses 1 and 2 with those consistent affections. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. These consistent affections, in other words, we might ask the question, what grabs my attention? Where are we focused on our day-to-day living? What is it that we sit up and take notice of? Where am I focused? The psalmist reminds us there needs to be two approaches to understand that. One is to reject 
something, and the other is to, and here's where the notes are going to change, routine there, write ruminate instead. We need to reject man-centered lies, and we need to ruminate on God's truth. In order to have consistent affection, the, the, the psalmist reminds us that our attention, what needs to grab our attention, is not man-centered teaching, but God's truth. Verse 1, he gives us that progression. We see it there. Walks not, does not stand, nor sits, right? That walking leads to standing, leads to sitting. Our acceptance of ungodly teaching and philosophy is not something that happens immediately. It's typically something that happens over a lifetime or generations. Who could have imagined 500 years ago that we would be in a culture that we are today? A culture of Corinth. Was that ever a thought? As people gathered to look at God's redemptive history on the ceiling of a church and celebrate that. That, we, that might be considered hate speech today. Wow, how we've changed. It's the old frog in the frying pan, right? You don't put a frog in a hot frying pan. You put them in lukewarm water and heat it up slowly. Then you'll cook them. Lobster, on the other hand, you throw in a boiling pot. Our historic culture, our current culture, shows how that can change over time. And so, knowing that that's a progression that takes place, we must reject the belief that current current conditions define the blessing. I cannot just look at my moment and say I am blessed or not blessed. Certainly there's some truth and reality to that. Certainly Abraham and Job and Adam and Eve and saints of the past have said, God is good, look what he has provided. When God himself said to the Israelites, how do you know you were blessed? Even in the desert, you were provided everything that you needed. But we got to be careful what standard we're setting for blessing. And so we must reject the cultural or conventional wisdom that is contrary to God's teaching. As we evaluate the moment, we have to remember that we are in the world, but not of the world. Paul reminds us that we are not to be conformed to the thinking of this world, but transformed. We must be on guard and careful as we deal with the light and the dark issues that come our way each day. The light and the dark issues, the issues of truth and the issues of lies that we must deal with each day and throughout our lives. As I evaluate or as I consider how to raise my family, whose truth am I seeking? Is it God's truth or is the conventional wisdom of the psychologist? They may agree, but what if they don't? To which do I default? What model do I use for my marriage? Is it Christ and his church? Or is it the latest self-help group from a nation that flips a coin to decide whether or not they're going to stay married? A divorce rate of 50%. It's a coin flip. 
in our country. When it comes to business, is it godly principles or bottom line? What is guiding our decisions? In education, how do we view our children? Are they in the image of God or are they wards of the state? The church, is it the preaching of the gospel or sensitivity to the seeker? What guides our decisions, our entertainments? Is it what brings glory to God and what is true, beautiful, or good? Or what makes me feel good at the moment? That excites my fleshly desires. We must reject those which are just cultural mores and conventional wisdom and make sure that we are making those judgments and those evaluations based on the word of God. And that's a challenge. As Paul reminds us, there's this, the flesh is with us and we have these battles every day. So how are we going to go about that? How do we stop one thing and start another? How do we put off and put on, right? We can't just say no, 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 no. There needs to be a yes. And we're reminded that when we stop something, we must replace it. So therefore, when we reject, when we reject these wrong beliefs, we must replace it with new and right beliefs. And that comes through the rumination or ruminating on God's truth as the psalmist reminds us in verse 2. To delight and meditate in God's word. It is good, right? Doesn't John in his little epistle remind us that God's word or God's law is not burdensome? Isn't that the biggest argument about God's word? It's restrictive, it's hard, it's demanding. For those that love God, for those who have the Spirit dwelling in them, does the Spirit love God's Word? Absolutely. Does the Spirit ever defy God's Word? Never. Does the Son ever go against His own Word or the Word of the Father? Never. Ever. Not just in a million years, but never in eternity. And so the word of God is good. It is precious. The psalmist in Psalm 19 reminds us it is more precious than silver, honey, gold, precious stones. Think of the time and energy we put into pursuing all of those gems. And that bounty, do we have that same delight in God's word? It is powerful. It is profitable. It is not a chore. So delight in God's word and meditate. And this is where that word ruminate comes from. It's something that takes time. It takes practice. We must slow down. We must ruminate. Oftentimes, I think the picture that is given for this is the, the cow or the sheep and chewing their cud. Right? They take a nice big mouthful of grass and kind of chew on it and put it in one of their stomachs and then bring it back up. Chew on it some more and put it down in the second stomach. Takes four stomachs to finally get it ready to go. And that's kind of the picture. And that certainly is a good picture to think about it. But in Isaiah chapter, um, where was that at? Isaiah 34. We're given another uh, picture of that. And that is of a growling lion. As God is 
reminding Israel of the help that he has been to them, he says, as the Lauren roars and a young lion over his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice nor be disturbed by their noise. Picture that young lion who has just secured his prey. And he starts chewing on that fresh meat. Oh, you hear that, right? You've seen the, you've seen the Animal Planet programs, right? And then a jackal starts... Right? There's a roar. There's a growl. There's a moan. This is good. And that's how we meditate on the Word of God. Do we do that? Do we get there? Oh! <laughs> Don't bother me right now. I'm, this is a good one. <clears throat> Delighting in God's Word. Meditating on it. That is where the blessing begins. That is the person who is blessed by God to delight in God's word. So while the illustration for a meditation is helpful, the psalmist also wants to give us an illustration on how that should look like in our life. So he gives us a contrasting, some contrasting analogies in verses 3 and 4. The blessed man shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. The two analogies. The blessed man is a strong tree. The man who's not so blessed is the unstable chaff. Your choice. Well, we got this tree being nourished. It's alive. It's fruitful. It has purpose. It's lasting. It has stuff in the middle. Or we've got chaff, which is dry and dead. It's useful. Right? After being separated from the seed, we're able to use it as bedding under the cows to, or the animals to gather their poop or we can use it to suck up some liquid out of our glass we may even use it to cover the lawn that we've prepared so that the grass will come up well straw has a use but it's not lasting as soon as it's used it's thrown out it's temporary so here we have the picture, the blessed man is someone who's stable, permanent, persevering. Those who are unblessed are wavering, they're unstable. They're temporary, they stay in things temporarily. Christ gives that same picture in John 15 when he's giving the picture of the vine and the branches, right? Christ is the vine, I am the vine, you are the branches, says Christ. And as he looks at his branches, he determines if they're fruitful or unfruitful, blessed or not blessed. And what does he do to either one? In order to bless them more, 
he prunes them. And if they're not producing fruit, he prunes them. We've talked about this before. In either case, pruning is going to take place. One, to remove it. The other, to make it grow. And so as we abide in Christ, he says in chapter 15, as we, as we abide in Christ and the word of Christ abides in us, we will be a fruitful branch. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the picture of our life? As I explore and examine and review my day-to-day living, my year-to-year living, am I steadfast or unstable? Do I appear living or dead? Am I fruitful or unfruitful? Does there appear to be pruning or is it a life of ease? That is the picture to help us understand in either way there's pruning and either way there are future consequences that the the psalmist wants us to understand and herein lays the blessing. We've focused our affections on the word of God. We've seen the results that God's word brings in our daily life as we are steadfast. And now we have the promise or we have those consequential assurances. What does my future hold? Verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. He sets up another contrast here with blessing and cursing. Implied in the first part as he's talking about what's happening to the ungodly, we see the blessing for the righteous person. Right? The godly shall not stand in the judgment. Well, that means who's standing? There's someone that's standing in the judgment, right? And we see three areas. There's judgment, there's fellowship, and there's intimacy or acknowledgement that are going to distinguish those who are blessed and those who are cursed. So first, those who are blessed will be blessed because they they will be partaking or they will partake in eternal life. We see that they will withstand the judgment. When we go to the book of Revelation and we see the picture of heaven and all as God's bringing his redemptive plan to a close. In Revelation 20, we're reminded that the second death has no power over those who are God's redeemed. What a great blessing. The second death, I do not die. Those who are of God, those who are blessed by God, will not die. And then we see that as we talk about the sinners not being in the congregation of the righteous, that means there's a congregation of the righteous. We will be there and join the eternal fellowship. Revelation again reminds us in chapter 22 that we will, those who are in Christ, will be able to enjoy the tree of life and enter the city. Remember that picture of Christian again as he enters the celestial city, rejoicing after a life of hardship and toil. 
And if that isn't enough, Revelation 19 reminds us that we are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who doesn't like a good wedding, right? And the reason we go is we check out to see what they're having for the feast afterwards. We're not just invited to the wedding. We're invited to the wedding feast. To sit at the table with Christ. Forget that picture of Christ at the Last Supper. This is Christ at the eternal feast. And we are there. What a blessing. So we will stand in the judgment. We will join the eternal fellowship. And... What's it say in verse 6? The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, this word know, once again, it's important to define it. It's not just, hey, look, look what's happening. I, I, under, I know what's happening. It's he acknowledges it. It's more that intimate knowledge that where Adam knew Eve. It wasn't just like, well, let me, I should write her a postcard and say hi to her, right? There was an intimacy there. And then we have an intimacy with Christ. He knows us. He has noticed us. He has acknowledged us. Revelation 14 says that those who die in Christ will be able to rest from their labors and their works will follow them. What a blessing that what we are doing even now has eternal impact. And as we read in in Matthew, we're reminded again Of those words we hope to hear someday. Well done, good and faithful servant. So that's the blessed person. They're going to stand in the judgment. They're going to join the eternal fellowship. And they are going to know Christ personally. And he's going to pronounce accolades upon them. Not so for those who perish for eternity. Not so for those who are cursed. Not so for the ungodly. But they will not make it through the judgment. They will be cast out. And they will be unknown. As Christ completes his Sermon on the Mount. They come to him and say, Lord, Lord, we have served you. And Christ says, not everybody that says that will enter the kingdom of heaven. But rather, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the assurances of what does our future hold have been clearly pointed out. There's eternal rest and feasting and joy with Christ. Or there's eternal perishing, being cast out in damnation. And Christ succinctly puts this together in one of his parables in Matthew 25. When he says, the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him... Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And he will say to those on the right, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he will turn to the left, and he will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Those are not my words. Those are not some prominent writer today. That is Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's put together the plan, saying this is how it's going to go. 
And so the picture has been clearly painted. As we step back from the busyness and distractions of daily life, what do we see? Are we blessed? Do we have consistent affections? Where are my attention focused? Do we have, how do we match up to the contrasting analogies? Are we stable and persevering or do we give in to the whims of life? And where is your hope? What is the consequential assurance? What does your future hold? Those are questions that must be answered in order to understand your blessing. But be encouraged, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 37, do not fret because of evildoers. They will look like they're getting ahead. Nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Just as Michelangelo presented his masterpiece over 500 years ago this season, so God is presenting his masterpiece, for we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece, created in Christ for good works. Be blessed in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Lord God, you are a merciful, gracious Heavenly Father, and you are bountiful in all that you do. Thank you for the clear picture that you have painted for us to help us understand your blessing, to be able by your spirit to persevere through the moment, to see beyond the distractions of the day, and to have our hope of eternal glory as you present us as your masterpiece. If that is not our hope, Lord, by your spirit, continue to convict us and change our hearts that we might know that hope. But for those who know this truth, I pray that we would not put it aside, but that we would continue day to day to be joyful, rejoice, be happy, in spite of what's going on. Thank you that we can do that by your spirit to the glory of Christ. change. Everything on the earth and in the universe is constantly moving. Time knows nothing of rest. The earth is an ever-turning sphere. The tide moves the seas, the winds alter the landscape, seasons come and go, rulers rise and fall, boundary lines shift. Today's greatest thing will be tomorrow's trash. One day we are healthy and strong, the next we are weak and ill. Change is everywhere. It is often said that change is good, 
All of us here at some point, in an effort to be encouraging, have probably uttered these words. But change is also scary. In fact, it can be downright terrifying. What if the company that once heavily recruited you is now laying you off? What if the husband that once vowed to love and cherish you is now cold and distant? What if your once sweet and obedient little girl is now a rude and defiant teenager? Or the people you once called friends are now slandering you behind your back? These are just small, a small sampling of very real changes that can happen in our lives. Change is inevitable, but change does not have to be terrifying. We have an anchor. We have a sure foundation. Here at this table, we see that which doesn't ever change, Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The bread and the wine are signs of his unceasing love for you. They are seals of his irrevocable redemption for your souls. We partake of this meal regularly as a constant reminder of Jesus' unchanging promises to us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let the earth keep turning. Let presidents come and go. Let friends and family fail us. Let sickness and death happen. God, in whom there is no shadow of turning, is in control of it all. And he will not lose any for whom his precious son bled and died. Come then, dear Christians. Come and partake. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings. Thank you.